Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our current series, Unshakable Hope. Unshakable Hope is a reminder of the hope we have in Christ, how it is enduring and withstands and lasts through the ages, the hope that comes with knowing the God who sees us, loves us, and will never leave us. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. I want to welcome everybody who's gathered here in our Granby campus, is all also on our online campus. We're glad you're here, and we're glad that you've joined us, and we encourage you to join us again next Sunday, too. I really appreciate the words and teaching of uh, Pastor Max Lucado. He, he writes about New York City as a place where you can have all kinds of experiences. He says, if you want a view of the skyline, you've got to go to the Brooklyn Bridge. For entertainment, you go to Broadway. For inspiration, you go to the Statue of Liberty. And if you like to shop, the stores on Fifth Avenue will gladly take your credit cards. But if you want to be depressed and utterly overwhelmed and absolutely distraught, you take a cab to the corner of the Avenue of the Americas and West 44th Street and spend a few moments in the presence of the U.S. National Debt Clock. Now, if you turn your attention to the screen, we had somebody go there this week and actually take some footage from the National Debt Clock. And if you're trying to figure out the numbers, it's saying that the National Debt Clock is over 26 trillion dollars. Now, that sign is 25 feet wide. It weighs 1,500 pounds. It has 306 light bulbs that constantly and mercilessly and endlessly declare the U.S. debt and each one of our families share in that debt. Interestingly, the original clock was not built to go backwards, but the reality is is that it's rarely ever been needed to go backwards. Plans are now in effect to install an update so that it will show quadrillion dollar debt. So if debt is a tidal wave, according to that sign, the undertow is going to suck us back into the sea. Pretty depressing, isn't it? (laughs) Look, so uh, I'm not an economist, I'm a preacher, but my monetary experience has taught me that when people owe more than they own, you can expect trouble. Again, I'm not an economist, I'm a preacher, but when you you look at that question, you look at that clock, it brings an odd question to mind. And the question is this, what if heaven had one of those clocks? A marquee that measured not our fiscal debt, but our spiritual debt. Scripture often refers to sin in financial terminology. Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts. If sin is a debt, do you and I have a dot matrix trespass counter in heaven for each of one of us? And does it click at each infraction? We lie, click. We gossip, click. We demand our way, click. Talk about depressing Uh, A a financial liability is one matter, but a spiritual one? The debt of sin is something that we have to take seriously because it has serious consequences. It separates us from God. 
Now, the, the Bible tells us this in very clear language. It shows us this stark truth. In Romans chapter 3, it says this, everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And the prophet Isaiah was inspired to write these words. Our iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Now, this is bad news for all of us. God is perfect. And as Max Lucado writes, heaven is a perfect place for perfect people, which leaves us in a perfect mess. Um, According to heaven's debt clock, we owe more than we could ever repay. And every day brings more sin and thus more debt. And click, click, click. The counter goes on. But here's the good news. The Bible gives us this promise. It says, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So, so this is good news for all of us. If you're just beginning to understand the big idea about sin, this is good news for you. If you've known the big idea about sin, this is continued good news for you. But the reality of this calls for a response from each one of us. And unfortunately, it's a response that I think many of us, including myself, do not take seriously enough. So what should our response be to this promise that we have the unshakable hope, in other words, undeniable hope of forgiveness? See, the reality is this, knowing that we've been offered forgiveness does require a response from us. And I want to share with you what that response is. And here's the first thing that we have to do in response to knowing that we've been given the unshakable hope of forgiveness. We have to admit that we are sinners. Now, I've already shared this verse with you from Romans, but I'll share it again. Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. But we have to think about the reality of the fact that each one of us is a sinner. You know, that requires some humility. And Scripture talks time and time again about this, that God actually detests the proud, but he gives grace to those who are humble. In the book of First Peter, we read this, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So I think we have to pause here a moment and really consider what that means to each of us. You know, I think we all struggle with humility and with pride. In fact, those who find it easy to be humble could actually be prideful about their humility. So to begin with, to admit that we are sinners requires that we actually humble ourselves and admit that we're in need of a Savior. And our Savior Jesus calls us to follow him and to be a part of the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is a kingdom that is not like any kingdom in this world now or that has ever been or will ever be. It's an alternative kingdom where God is the king and a lot of the things of this world's earthly kingdoms don't matter in the kingdom of God. Not long after Jesus announced the kingdom of God was at hand, he preached a famous sermon, one we call the Sermon on the Mount, and in it he called his followers to a life of humility and to serve God's kingdom by serving others and by dealing with our sins. 
And in the first part of that sermon, he actually says, these are the kind of people that are blessed. He says, those who are humble, those who uh, are not proud, those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger for righteousness, those who give mercy, those who are pure, those who are peacemakers, and those who are persecuted. And then he goes on. And he confronts the sinfulness of all of us by calling out such sins as anger and lust. And then he commands us to do something that would seem impossible. That we're supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Jesus calls us in his alternative kingdom to live not in the way of the world, but to live in humility. But unfortunately, we as Christians seem more and more to confuse following Jesus with things of this world. Sometimes we confuse following Jesus with a political position or a political party. Sometimes we as Christians confuse following Jesus with, with a certain preference for this thing or that thing or by wanting these rights or those rights. And the reality is there's no humility in those positions. Jesus was not political he did not belong to a political party. He wasn't a Democrat or a Republican. Jesus didn't care about doing things my way or your way. He only cared about doing things God's way. Jesus didn't want to protect our rights and make that a priority. He actually called us to sacrifice our rights for the kingdom of God and for the good of others. In the Gospels, the two of the disciples come up to Jesus and they ask him when he comes in his kingdom, in other words, when he establishes it on earth, can I sit on your right side and my friend sit on your left side? They're getting political with Jesus and they're asking for positions and preferences and rights. And Jesus' response is one that they don't necessarily expect. He says, can you drink the cup that I will drink? In other words, he's saying, listen, I'm going to suffer. Can you drink this cup of suffering that I'm going to have to drink? And then he goes on and he says, only God can decide that. And he concludes with this statement. He says, if you want to be great, you must be the servant of all the others. In other words, Jesus is saying, we have to humble ourselves. So humbling ourselves would be us admitting, first and foremost, that we are sinners. And that no matter how hard we try to be good, no matter how hard we try to do the right thing, we fail and we make mistakes and we sin. Sometimes we do them consciously, on purpose. Sometimes we do them by unconsciousness. Sometimes, as I said, we do them on purpose, intentionally, and sometimes we do them by intentionally omitting to do things. The prophet Isaiah said this, each of our good deeds is merely a filthy rag. In other words, as good as we think our good deeds are, they're not good enough. You know, one of the things that I have always admired about 12-step recovery programs like Alcoholics Anonymous is the humble honesty with which people introduce themselves. They say, hi, my name is Tom, and I'm an alcoholic. In the body of Christ, maybe we'd, we should say something like this. Hi, my name is Clark, and I'm a sinner. 
You see, we're all sinners who need a Savior. And the path to the Savior begins by us being honest and admitting that we are sinners who need forgiveness for our sins. What if we had the humility to admit every day that we're sinners? If you want to embrace the truth of the unshakable hope of God's forgiveness, it's going to have to start with us being honest with ourselves. Because God already knows. And we have to admit that we're sinners. But it's not going to end there. The next thing we have to do is we have to confess our sinfulness. The Apostle John wrote in his first letter these powerful words about the reality of our sinfulness and the power of confession. He writes, If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So so John starts out, and then he sort of ends with what we just talked about admitting that we're sinners, not lying about the fact that we're all sinners. But then he goes and right in the middle, he tells us that when we admit we're sinful, God's going to do his part. He's going to accept our confession of our sins and he's going to forgive us and he's going to purify us from all of our sinfulness. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther said in the 1500s, he actually wrote this in his larger catechism, he said, I admonish you to confession. I'm admonishing you to, I'm admonishing you to be a Christian. Basically what he's saying is, listen, when you are a Christian, confession of your sins has to be a part of who you are. Now, of all people, Christians should know that they're sinners and they should know that they need to confess their sins to be forgiven and to continue in close relationship with God. And of all people, we should know that the unavoidable consequences of our sin is that it will separate us from God, a God who is holy and cannot tolerate sin and come into its presence. And so when we're not dealing with our sins, we're separated from God. But we, again, of all people, should know that when we confess our sins to God, that he will forgive us. Because Jesus died to pay the price for our sins. God forgives us. He purifies us. And if there were a dot matrix counter in heaven counting each one of our sins, when we confess our sins, it would roll back to zero. Confessing our sins to God so that we can be restored in our relationship with him, needs to be a daily part of our walk with God. Here again, I'll turn to the 12 steps of AA, which teaches people in those 12 steps to confess their sins, and they actually do it more regularly and better than I think we do in the church. Step four of the 12 steps is this, that you're supposed to make a searching, fearless, moral inventory of oneself. And then the next step says this, admit to God, ourselves, and others the exact nature of our wrongs. 
You know, I believe that being specific in our confession of our sins is important because it causes us to grapple with our behavior and the weight of it and the consequences of our sinfulness. It causes us to understand how our sin affects our relationship with God and how our sin affects others. In fact, there's actual evidence that being specific about the confession of our sins can make our life actually more meaningful. Now, while most of us think of confession as a, as a negative experience, re- researchers have found that if you want to make confession have a positive impact on your life, you need to make a full confession and not just a partial haphazard confession. In 2014, uh, researchers in the United States and Israel looked at how people felt about their confessions. And and the Harvard Business Review uh, summarized their research saying this, confession is a powerful way to relieve guilt, but it works only if you tell the whole truth. Now, While the research being done here wasn't for Christian purposes, the author had a surprising biblical angle on the results. This is what he wrote. Confessing to only part of the guilt of one's transgressions is attractive to a lot of people because they expect the confession to be more believable and more guilt-relieving than not confessing at all. But our finding shows the exact opposite. People seeking redemption by partially admitting their big lies feel guiltier because they do not take complete responsibility for their behaviors. What that study reveals is the powerful effect on us when we own our sinfulness and actually make a full confession. The Bible teaches us that over and over again, that we just need to get right with God and confess our sins. In fact, the Bible teaches us a lot about uh, the forgiveness of sins through confession, and it gives us some instruction that we need to follow. And I want to highlight one verse. It's one verse that, that may seem odd to us, but the Apostle James writes this. He says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So why does James teach us to confess to one another. Because here's the deal. When we confess our sins to one another, instead of just doing them in our head, it brings our sins out into the open so that they can no longer be hidden and where we can have accountability from a brother or sister in Christ. The pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. A person who confesses his or her sins in the presence of another knows that he or she is no longer alone with themselves. He or she experiences the presence of God and the reality of the other person. As long as I am by myself in the confession of my sins, everything remains in the dark. But in the presence of another, the sin that I have has been brought out into the light. You see, there's power in confession because it brings forgiveness from God. But when we confess our sins to one another, we're actually bringing it out into the open and we're inviting accountability and we're shattering that false narrative that as Christians, we're perfect and have it all together. So confession to one another is important. Uh, Richard Foster writes this. 
He says, confession is a difficult discipline for us because we all too often view the body of Christ, the church, as a fellowship of saints before we see it as a fellowship of sinners. The fear and pride that cling to us like barnacles cling to others also. We are sinners together. In the act of mutual confession, we release the power that heals. Our humanity is no longer denied, but transformed. Admitting we are sinners and confessing our sins are a step we must take to receive that promise of the unshakable hope of forgiveness. Let me also give this aside. Confessing our sins to one another shouldn't be something we take lightly. I always encourage uh, men to confess if they're going to have an accountability partner and confess sins. Men with men, women with women. I want to encourage you to consider that as something you add into your spiritual disciplines. Talking about this unshakable hope of forgiveness, we have to talk about one more thing. We need to talk about repentance. The fact is this, that we need to repent of our sins. Now, the the original Greek word that we translate as repent literally means to change one's mind. Specifically, to change our mind, particularly with regards to sin. Instead of seeing it something that it's something that we just think of casually, it's something that we change our minds to think of with disgust. Jesus began his ministry with this statement. He said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus is announcing the kingdom of God here. And to be a part of the kingdom of God means you need to change your mind. In other words, you need to change the way you think about God and the way you think about being part of the kingdom of God and also the way you think about your sinfulness. In an article entitled, Whatever Became of Repentance, Mark Galley writes, Repentance is unpopular because we're addicted to justifying our actions and pointing out the evil in others. If I really looked at my own self-centeredness and pride, I'd have to admit that I am also a hypocrite and a moral failure. And then again, aren't we all? That's precisely why Jesus came. He came to save the world, to save each of us from ourselves. And that's why the word repentance is usually connected to the phrase good news. So when we truly repent, not only are we changing our mind, we're changing how we live because we're changing how we look at our behavior. We see our sin. It disgusts us because we realize it's not part of the life of being a follower of Christ. You know, I like to think of repentance this way. It's like making a U-turn. You know, when you're going somewhere, you're driving down the highway, and you realize that you're going the wrong direction. What do you do? You need to turn around. So you make a U-turn, and you go the right way instead of the wrong way. When we repent, we stop going the wrong way. We admit it, and we start going the right way. You know, the unshakable hope of God's forgiveness is real for all of us. And to receive that unshakable hope, we have to believe in and receive Jesus Christ as our Savior who died to pay for our sins and now who wants to be our Lord, our leader, and we're going to follow him. But it also means that, that we come to terms with who we are, that we're sinners, that we confess our sins, and that we repent. We make a U-turn. We turn away from the way we've been living. So uh, I want to close this time with us 
actually spending some time with these truths. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward because in a minute we're going to, we're going to sing a song. But, but here's what I want us to, to deal with. First and foremost, you've got to admit that you believe in Jesus Christ, that you believe in him as your Lord and Savior and that you want to follow him. And so in, in a moment, I'm going to give you the opportunity to pray a prayer to profess that and become a follower of Jesus. But becoming a follower of Jesus means we admit that we're sinners, that we confess our sins, and that we turn away from our sins. And that's not a once and done thing. That's something that we're actually supposed to do because the truth of the matter is we're going to sin every day. We're going to go our own way. We're going to try to be God in our lives instead of letting God be God. We're going to sin against somebody. We're going to make mistakes. And so we have to make confession of our sin and repentance a, a daily part of our walk with Jesus. And so I want to go into a time of prayer where I invite people to pray to put their faith and trust in Jesus, but I'm also going to move into an extended amount of time where I invite you to confess your sins and talk to God about your need for repentance. And I want to encourage you to be specific. So uh, wherever you are in the room or online, I want to invite you to bow your heads with me, and I'm going to lead us through this prayer time. God, we thank you that you hear our prayers and that you are present with us, and you're looking forward to what we have to say. And so I'm going to begin with this. If, if you've never put your trust in Jesus and said you believe in him and want to follow him, I want to encourage you to do that today. And you can take these words that I'm going to give you and pray them back to God or put them in your own, in your own words. And I'll begin with this. Dear God, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus died to pay for my sins. And I believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. And today I confess that I'm a sinner. And I repent of my sinfulness. And I pledge to follow you the rest of my life. And I will say amen to that part of our prayer. But as I said, we're going to move into an extended time of silent confession. So in this silence, I invite you to bring your confessions to God.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc. 